This episode is brought to you by Esperion, the lipid management company, singularly focused on helping the millions of patients taking statin therapy who still need additional LDLC lowering. Learn more at Esperion.com. From the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org, Editor-in-Chief. With this week's Eagle's Eye View, this is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. I'm recording this podcast on Monday, November 11th, 2019. Next week, of course, we'll be covering major clinical trials at the American Heart Association meeting. So this week, I chose three articles which are more from an observational viewpoint that I think illustrate different aspects of clinical care that are important to us. First, we'll talk about the association of sex with outcomes in patients undergoing PCI. Then we'll talk about a paper looking at predictors of progression in patients who have stage B, aortic valve regurgitation. And we'll finish with a study looking at the interplay of coronary calcium scores with other risk factors in predicting long-term mortality and cardiovascular endpoints. So let's get started. The first article was published uh, this past week in JAMA Cardiology. The title is The Association of Sex with Outcomes in Patients Undergoing PCI, And it's a subgroup analysis of the global leaders randomized clinical trial. You remember that this was a randomized trial evaluating two different strategies of antiplatelet therapy after PCI in an unselected population from over 130 centers in different countries. Nearly 16,000 patients were enrolled. They had undergone PCI between July 2013 and November of 2015. And then they had outpatient clinic visits all the way out to 24 months. Eligible patients had been randomized to either an experimental or reference antiplatelet strategy. And remember, the experimental strategy was one month of dual antiplatelet therapy and then 23 months of monotherapy with ticagrelor. And the reference strategy was 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy and then 12 months of aspirin monotherapy. The primary efficacy endpoint was a composite of all-cause mortality and new Q-wave MI at two years. A safety endpoint included bleeding, the Bleeding Academic Research Consortium Type 3 or 5 bleeding, and I'll refer to this as the BARC Type 3 or 5 bleeding risk. And they looked at the association of sex with the outcomes using both unadjusted and adjusted multivariate modeling. So of the nearly 16,000 patients in the study, 23% were women. And the risk of the primary endpoint at two years was similar between men and women. Interestingly, compared with men, women had a higher risk of bleeding. The adjusted hazard ratio was 1.32, and a higher risk of hemorrhagic stroke. The adjusted risk of that was much higher, nearly 5. At two years, there was no between-sex difference in the efficacy and safety of the two antiplatelet strategies. At one year, compared to DAPT, ticagrelor monotherapy was associated with a lower risk of bleeding in men, but not in women. So the authors concluded that compared to men, women had a higher rate of bleeding and hemorrhagic stroke after PCI. Also, it's interesting, female sex has been identified as an independent predictor for premature ticagrelor cessation in the trials, and it's largely owing to bleeding or dyspnea. And therefore, physicians should carefully weigh the risk and benefit of using ticagrelor in women, particularly in the light of the fact that ticagrelor monotherapy was not associated with lower bleeding risk in women in this particular study. So I think we continue to discover differences between men and women as we apply various types of treatments in cardiovascular care and prevention. And this is another one which I think is pretty interesting 
looking at potentially a higher risk of bleeding in women post-PCI compared to men. I'm going to shift gears now to valve disease, and this is a paper just published in JAK looking at predictors of progression in patients with stage B aortic valve regurgitation. A single setter study of nearly 1,100 patients, average age 66, and these people were followed for evidence of progression. They were enrolled in the registry between 2004 and 2017. At baseline, about 18% had trivial or mild AR. Mild to moderate was present in 43% and moderate AR in 39%. The 10-year incidence of progression to moderate or severe aortic valve regurgitation was 12, 30, and 53%, depending on the stage of the AR at baseline. At four years follow-up, there were about 21% progressors. This gave an annualized progression rate within three years of a, a significant amount, 21%. If they looked at baseline AR severity and dimensions, these were associated with progression, particularly the sinotubular junction and the annulus. Hypertension and systolic blood pressure were not once the severity of the annular size and AR were accounted for. Progressors had faster chamber remodeling, functional class decline, and of course, more aortic valve and aortic surgery. At five years of follow-up, 22% of the patients had died. Survival was linked to age, comorbidities, functional class, resting heart rate, and left ventricular ejection fraction, but not end systolic dimension. Survival after progression to stage C and DAR was associated with the LV end systolic dimension index. The authors concluded that progression from stage B to stage C and D aortic valve regurgitation was observed in 21% at a median of four years. Repeat echo was recommended for trivial to mild, mild to moderate, and moderate every five, three, and one years respectively. And this seemed reasonable and seemed to correlate with the relative rate and stage of progression. The authors did recommend that we measure effective regurgent orifice area, RV, size and function, annulus, and sinotubular junction as routines in order to identify patients at a higher risk of progression. So in summary, this article I think is very consistent with the current recommendations and the guidelines that patients who have mild or trivial AR get echoes every three to five years, but for stage B, one to two years is reasonable. And we have to pay attention particularly to those with larger aortic annulus size and sinotubular junction diameters and a greater aortic regurgitation severity at baseline. So a nice article in uh, Jack looking at progression of aortic valve regurgitation. Let's finish with another article looking at this time at coronary artery calcium and risk factors. The CAC Consortium is a multicenter study of nearly 66,000 individuals without evident coronary heart disease who underwent CAC testing, and they were divided into different groups. They also were assessed in terms of risk factors, including current cigarette smoking, dyslipidemia, diabetes, hypertension, or a family history of coronary heart disease. And death and the cause of death were obtained from the Social Security Death Index master file. The mean age of the population was 54 years, two-thirds were men, 17% had no risk factors, 36% had one, 32% had two, and 15% had three or more. About 45% of the patients had a coronary calcium score of zero. 
31%, it was between 1 and 100. And in 13%, it was between 100 and 400. And 11% had higher scores greater than 400. Over 12 plus years of follow-up, there were over 3,000 deaths, 4.7%, and 32% of these were cardiovascular in nature. There was a highly significant 16 and 23-fold increased risk in the annualized cardiovascular disease and CHD mortality rate among patients who had a score greater than 400 compared to people who had a CAC score of zero. Individuals with greater than or equal to three risk factors had a smaller increased risk for coronary disease and CVD mortality, 2 and 1.8 fold respectively, compared to those without risk factors. Across all of the strata of risk factors, CAC score added prognostic information. For example, participants without risk factors but who had a calcium score greater than 400 had a highly significant higher all-cause overall mortality and CVD event rate compared to people with risk factors but no calcium score. So this is a very nice and large study that further characterizes the value of calcium scoring in assessing long-term risk in this study over 12 years. It certainly supports the notion that individuals with very high calcium scores are particularly at risk. It also has a couple of other points that I think are important. The endpoint of mortality should not be used to infer a very low risk or to delay a lifestyle and statin therapy in low and borderline risk people who have a lot of risk markers like smokers, diabetics, or risk enhancers, LP little a elevation, LDLC levels greater than 190, or familial hyperlipidemia. In contrast, patients who have a low estimated risk and an isolated low HDL or family history of premature disease and a CAC score of zero, they can generally avoid statin therapy with careful follow-up. And as you know, recent studies suggest that in these types of individuals, follow-up calcium scoring in four to five years may be of value. So we've covered a lot. We looked at the impact of sex on uh, post-PCI outcomes. We talked about progression of aortic valve regurgitation and finally looked a little bit at the interplay between coronary calcium and other risk factors. I want to thank you for listening to this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from acc.org. And you can find these articles and the journal scans on our website. Also find our new educational catalog, which is featured there under the Education and Meetings tab. Find us online or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, I hope you have a good one. Thank you.